welcome back to The Lover's Hole, where we're rereading the Jack Aubrey and Stephen Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike. And you're with Ian. And we're just underway. First third of The Letter of Mark. Ian, catch us up uh, to where we've been and where we're going. Well, Jack and the crew have been on their trial cruise aboard the surprise in her new identity as a Letter of Mark. Jack has been trying hard to avoid Royal Navy vessels who might offer personal slights or might even prey on his men, of which more in a moment. Um, Jack was starting out the chapter last week pretty somber, not even made happy by the, the practice at the Great Guns. They had, as we had all feared, been stopped by a Navy cutter commanded by this fairly chippy uh, junior officer. Stephen had helped out by giving Jack this paper showing that the Surprises crew were exempt from impressment. And this went a fair way to improving Jack's mood. Uh, it went a long way to improving the mood of the crew who indulged in some collective cutter mooning. Um, Jack had learned from Stephen about some more of the context to the, the, the Ray affair and the stock exchange fraud. And that had started to give him some hope that he might get reinstated all the time with this caveat from Stephen, this admonition that he should stay busy and not too hopeful. We'd learned about the rather shocking death of the French spy Duhamel. Padine had been treated with laudanum for a burn. And there's more to say on that that's coming up this chapter. And Jack had steadily become more excited about gunnery, about knitting his crew together. However, as we close the chapter, he was worried that there's a coming storm, even though that storm might be the thing that brings the big blow that might bring his diverse crew, the Shemlestonians and the Surprisers, together. Stephen warned at the very end of the chapter about tears that come over prayers that are answered. So, Mike... That was last chapter. This time, in another long chapter, we've got a lot of twists and turns in this coming up chapter. We've got the big blow that we foresaw in the last chapter. We've got a longer cruise than expected, and that has some consequences. The surprise is going to meet a number of unexpected ships and learn a good deal about the perils, pitfalls, and rewards of privateering. Padine's going to sink deeper into his dependence on the laudanum that Stephen's given him. And we're once again going to be reminded that it's all about the wind. Right. The sailors, they do stay mindful of it, says Stephen, somewhere back in the cabin. I always love yeah. how you know, we, we, like Stephen, need that little reminder every once in a while. Because this one, boy, it is the wind. They are in the midst, as you said, Ian, of this big three-day blow that absolutely qualifies, as Jack had said, for the, the prayed-for blow. The winds are strengthening and they're shifting randomly. Uh, Pulling is worried. He goes up on deck at 3 a.m. to check on Davidge. And, and Davidge was just about to call Jack out of his bed because he thinks that the tiller ropes might be slipping or growing frayed. And, and Pulling takes the wheel, you know, waits for it to shift a little bit and says, ah, it's only one of her little tricks in this sort of weather. She's always done it. We can let him lie in peace. And, and yeah, and that piece lasts for about two minutes <laughs> as there's, you know, there's lightning all around, huge thunder claps, the wind turns violently again, and surprises, forecastle plunges deep under green water. The, the ship pitches so hard that Jack's cot dashes him violently against the overhead beams, and pullings up by the wheel is is thinking to himself, I doubt she will ever rise again. You know, Jack comes running up. Uh, 
he's, he's in his nightshirt. He's dripping blood as this water you know, rolls from the front of the ship to the back, bursts the cabin bulkhead inward, and Jack grabs the wheel. He wants to know, does she still steer? She does. And he's roaring out orders to save them. And, and that's kind of the, the last of the big freakish things. The gale slackens a little bit, and they're starting to repair damage. They're up to making five knots again. The galley fires are lit by breakfast time. And O'Brien writes, Killick had recovered his coffee mill from the bilges where some irrational blast hurled it when the carpenter's mate went below to attend to the well. <laughs> so, Ian, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this going, whoa, whoa, you know, his coffee mill, it's, you know, sitting there in the cabin. Now it's in the bilges. What is this? Uh... Well, it's funny. First of all, I, I love reading again how O'Brien writes about heavy weather. He hasn't done it for a few books. We had lots of it in Desolation Island. I think Mauritius Command, I think HMS Surprise all have this kind of big Atlantic heavy weather in. And he writes really authentically, especially considering that it seems like he never went anywhere beyond the Mediterranean in a, in a boat. But this is a real thing, and not not so much from the wind, but just from movement. When a boat gets thrown around in a storm, if stuff isn't like locked away, and sometimes even if it is, it can end up in the strangest places. You know, you're like, oh, goodness me, you know, there's a sock in the cutlery drawer. Oh, there's my toothpaste. I found my toothpaste in the engine compartment. Stuff just gets thrown around, and uh, poor old Killick is going to have to deal with the consequences of how the coffee might taste after the bilge is oh, has, has contaminated it. I love these little details. It's and it's certainly true. From Jack's perspective, we get this really clearly. Waking up to go on deck in in heavy weather at night is one of the most disorienting things. You know, I've done it. You're going up on deck and you feel like you're, you know, in a train hurtling at 100 miles an hour into a black tunnel that's full of water. It's the most disturbing thing for a few minutes until you find out where you're at. So I'm I'm really right there with Jack. And Mike, we were talking before about will seamanship and challenge draw Jack back into his happy place. And I have a feeling that this blow is a, is a really nice thing for Jack. I think this is, you know, all the damage and the frustration that he's suffering with the blood running down his face. I think that's welcome damage and it's welcome frustration compared to all the pain and frustration that he had at the end of reverse of the medal. So we read a little bit about the damage that's been done to Jack's person. Jack Aubrey, says the text, had a bloody bandage around his head, obscuring one eye. He usually wore his long yellow hair neatly plaited and clubbed with a broad ribbon behind his neck, but so far he had not had time to wash the pints of clotted blood out of it, and the stiffened locks stood out in all directions, giving him a most inhuman look. And we've had that before, you know, Jack with a bit of a wound on board and with a bit of lack of sleep can look a bit inhuman. He was, in any case, very pleased with the ship's company. There was no moaning about the conditions, no moaning about short rations. There was no holding back on the crew's commitment in the storm. And this, as O'Brien writes, gave his remaining eye quite a benevolent expression. And that must have been a nice little moment for Stephen and the others to see that Jack is maybe getting back into some kind of shape here. Anyhow... Pullings arrives. He apologizes for not knocking on the cabin door because the cabin door is not there. It's been washed away. They report a sail hull down to leeward. And Jack invites Pullings to sit down. He says, let me pour you a cup. It tastes a little odd, but it is hot and wet. And, you know, coffee's been in the bilges, so no great surprise there. Um, nothing like bilge-infused coffee in the midst of a storm. It probably tastes a bit salty also, but who cares? <laughs> Looking at the shambles of the cabin... Tom says that the doctor 
must have had quite a night. And Stephen now chimes in. He says, at one time, I was deeply uneasy. I will admit, it appeared to me through my dreams that some criminal had left the door open and that I should be exposed to the falling damps. Oh, God between us and evil. He's always worried about the falling damps. But then it goes on. I perceived there was no door at all and composed my mind to sleep. <laughs> Stephen, the stoic, composing himself even through a gale. Or maybe, as, as we used to say in the 60s, Mike, Better living through chemistry, right? Right, right. We know how Stephen sleeps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the chase where they get up on deck doesn't appear to be much, but Jack decides, you know, they're on this trial run and he packs on as much sail as he's able. And this is, for many of the hands, the first time they've actually seen the surprise uh, at top speed. She's making 10 knots in an ugly sea and they're all cheering. Uh, Jack sends him to dinner early just in case there's action coming. And he suspects that the chase is the schooner which outran Babington and the Tartarus. So hmm. since this schooner now is repairing its sails, Surprise is having no problem running her down. And then there's this cute conversation between Martin and Stephen on how do you know it's a schooner? And Stephen, waxing philosophical as a boat expert, quickly runs back to natural philosophy for his examples. And it's, it's pretty cute. <laughs> it is, isn't it? So they, they close in on the chase. And by the way, the memory of Babington, recently mentioned in our, in our memories, chimes in a little bit here because what we see are men and, get count them, three women at the taffrail of this ship, waving handkerchiefs and calling out. So this sounds like people who are glad to have a British letter of mark show up on the horizon here. The surprise fires a gun. The schooner strikes her colours and Jack is in command. I like this little moment of Jack saying, hold on a moment. He reminds the crew, anyone who pillages, robs or ill uses prisoners will be turned out of the ship. So Jack is finding his way to assure himself that this is going to be a, a Jack Aubrey honourable straight up and down kind of a privateering mission. None of your None of your piratical hijinks. They learn from the schooner's released prisoners that the Merlin is the Spartan's consort. So the ship that we just encountered is the Merlin. She's been in company with the Spartan. She was the French-American privateer that the surprise almost caught on her last voyage. Huh. The Spartan, we learn, had taken five prizes, two sugar ships, three West Indiamen with even more valuable cargoes. They're all moored in this harbour of Horta, on Fowl. Fowl is one of the Azores islands. I might you, you and I have talked about this. You go look on the map for the Azores, and uh, we realize this is this has been no couple of days cruise around the bay for the surprise. They've gone right out in mid-Atlantic. They're 850 miles west of Portugal. They're right in the Atlantic. Jack has put himself right out on a limb here, chasing after the prospect of this prize. The Merlin's prisoners are the captains and merchants and the wives of those merchants from those vessels that had been headed for France. They were planning to ransom themselves, their ships and their cargoes. And Jack is amazed at the number of prizes and he can't understand why the Spartan didn't head home as quickly as possible. And Mike, we, we get another familiar situation here, which is sitting down to dinner with an American officer, right? Yes, yeah, and, and it's interesting, Jack wants to invite them to dinner, but he realizes he has no stores, no provisions, and he can't entertain them the right way. So he asks this American captain, Mr. DuPont, um, you know, if he'll do him a favor. And I think that this captain knows that all these privateers are semi-piratical and, and pretty bad yeah. characters. And he's looking at Jack as, you know, O'Brien has described him, tall, gaunt, 
unwashed with yellow bristles glinting on his unshaven face, his bloody bandage bloodier still from the recent activity, and his blood-stiffened hair still hanging about him like a horribly dyed female wig. All the women have been terrified of him. This captain is a little taken back, and he's like, yeah, whatever you want. And Jack going on the we're not going to pillage philosophy is sort of saying, well, you know, I really want to invite you all to dinner, but I don't have really good things to serve you or a cook. And the captain is relieved. DuPont's like, oh, well, just please ask me. Uh, and DuPont <laughs> essentially gives Jack a lot of provisions for this big meal and says, and you may have my servant, you know, my cook that I take it off of a man who worshipped his belly. So he's a pretty good cook here. So the dinner turns out to be excellent. The cook has outdone himself. And all the surprises are saying, ah, that's because... You know, when this cook came aboard, the surprise, Killick had greeted him. And, and as we've seen in several other books in the canon, Killick is treating him like we do kind of little kids and foreigners or, or kind of people who are a little slow. Killick saying, you free man now, huzzah, as he you know gestures like somebody's taking the manacles off him. You, Killick says, touching his breast, free man. And the cook replies, uh, pardon me, sir, my, my name is Smith. But <laughs> the, the crew is cheering so loudly. You know, there's this great hullabaloo, uh, O'Brien says, on the deck that nobody hears him. So, you know, we, we've seen this scene before, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this reminded me of the Odabashi, you know, you ain't yes. no oil painting. And there's a, there's a, there are some quite similar scenes in the book Mr. Midshipman Easy by Frederick Marriott, who was a colleague of Thomas Cochrane. There's a character there who, is a, uh, who was a black man in service who, who is freed and becomes part of the, the characters of the story. Nice. So we have Jack eating congenially with an American officer. By the way, this generosity with the provisions extends the time, I think, or at least it takes away the pressure that Surprise is under to get back to Shinlaston because she's got relatively short supplies. The other nice piece of dining in company that we get is Stephen sitting down with, uh, let's let's say, a, a Latin European. Right. This guy, Jaime Guzman from Avila, which is a place, of, a place that Stephen knows pretty well. He's a partner in the merchant firm that had lost valuable die aboard this captured vessel, the William and Mary. He's really delighted to finally have someone he can speak to in Spanish. And he's delighted to be smoking cigars with Maturin. And he complains about how the odious women had not allowed to do this. And he's talking about Spain. He's very happy to refer to Stephen as a fellow Catholic. And he goes on to describe to Stephen how his brother's quicksilver operation had been disrupted that was shipping to the new world. He had chartered the Azul, Azul meaning blue, Azul, the most powerful and trustworthy privateer on the Spanish coast to carry 150 tons or 6,000 bags of quicksilver to the new world. And now he bemoans the fact that this privateer, the Spartan, knows about this quicksilver cargo and is going to be lying in wait for the Azul to capture the quicksilver in a few days. And then she'll get the rest of her prizes that are moored alongside in Fayal and sail back to America with... Dun, 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 the American frigate Constitution, who's going to join them at the end of the month. And Mike, I, I, I enjoyed this little conversation between Stephen and Guzman. And I wondered for a minute why it was that Stephen and you know the, the author's voice, as it were, didn't spend very much time speculating on whether Guzman's information might be a trap or at least might be unreliable. But then, you know, you look back to the way Guzman is characterized. He's a smug, upper-class merchant, and O'Brien doesn't like privileged people. Um, 
He's a misogynist. He speaks very unkindly about women. He's anti-Semitic. He speaks very longingly about the Spanish Inquisition and Ham. So I think, yeah, he's he's a setup. He's a mark who's there to be exploited. And we're very happy to believe that he's just generously giving up all of this intelligence. Yeah. And, and I love how O'Brien has Stephen when he relates his story to Jack saying, yeah, I, I don't believe these anti-Semitic remarks. I, you know, I don't believe, but I do think that he's telling the <laughs> truth about the Quicksilver and, yeah. and, you know, and the Spartan. So, well, you know, as, as Stephen does tell Jack all that he's learned, you know, Jack reminds him that they they really can't, as Jack say, they can't look at the Constitution, meaning, you know, Mm-mm. they really can't go head to head with her. She's, you know, she's got 44, 24 pounders. She is, as as we all know, old Ironsides. I mean, this is the one yeah. that, you know, his shots would bounce off of. Yeah. She she is the, the, the Asheron in the first reel of Master and Commander Far Side of the World. <laughs> exactly. Well put, Ian. Exactly yeah. right. But Jack does think, you know what? He's starting to kind of formulate this plan in his head. We could intercept the Spartan because she's going to have to be cruising between St. Michael's and St. Mary in order to have the weather gauge on the Azul when the Azul appears. Now, he's not sure how the storm may have affected the Azul, and there's a good chance that it could have held the Constitution back. So Jack's thinking if the breeze stays fair, always a big assumption, right? It's all about the wind and they can log 125 miles a day, there's a chance they could actually make it, intercept the Azul, or as the Azul, grab the Spartan, perhaps both. Jack says it's not a very strong possibility, but one at least worth a great deal of effort. I love the fact that Jack is allowed to just hope a little bit, and we are allowed to just hope a little bit. And all the time, he's, he's grasping the tabletop, he's reaching for belaying pins, he's touching wood. He's really not wanting to say, this is nailed on, I can do this. But he says, it's worth hanging out for. So we get into hardcore Cochrane territory. Now, Jack has Pullings losing not a minute, refitting the Merlin while he learns more about the Azul and how he might be able to take on her her form a little bit. She's bark rigged, and that means that her rearmost masts don't have any square sails on them. She has black gun ports and blue sides. Now, they can emulate the rigging by taking the square yards off of their mizzenmast. Um, they already have black gun ports, but they don't have enough blue or white paint to cover all of their black-banded topsides. The schooner repairs are coming along well, but Jack is scratching his head, and he comes up with this idea of using old spare sails, canvas sails, which are already white, painting them, stretching out the blue paint on these white sails to make this pale blue colour that will make them look like the azul when these canvas strips are roped along the side, are tied along the side of the surprise. And in the morning, they get started. They measure and cut and start painting this canvas. And this is a really great moment as Stephen wakes up, comes on deck after spending the night thinking about Diana. We see he had these brilliantly clear mental images of her, particularly one of her setting her horse at a monstrous fence where many men had turned back, which might be a little metaphor for what Stephen and Jack are about right now. He had taken Lordnum at 2am, so he stumbles up in his Lordnum haze and the crew are pretty short with him and Jack rescues him and says, Padim, go and get your master new shoes because pretty clearly he's come close to or has actually stepped in the blue paint. This is a really nice reversal. At the beginning of the book, Stephen was the resourceful one and Jack was wrestling with, am I going to stay down in the dumps or am I going to kind of find my way back into seamanship? Stephen is spending his night not sleeping and then hitting the Lord Numb. 
Jack, meanwhile, is back, as we said, in Cochrane territory, gussying up the ship to look like an enemy. And we all know that that's a classic Aubrey Cochrane move. They're so excited. The crew is about this possible encounter with the Spartan. So that at, at five bells, when Padine is beating you know, his pot and singing out for the sick to appear, the usual hypochondriacs are too busy working to show up. And Padine actually is the only patient. He's got what they think he and Martin think are, are an impacted wisdom tooth. So <sighs> Stephen really can't do anything for him. So he, of course, gives him laudanum and then just sort of wraps a, a, you know, a, a cloth around his face. And, and Martin points out that this laudanum seems to be Stephen's panacea. You know, whatever you have, whatever ails you, here's take a little laudanum. Um, and Stephen's glad that it does something for Padine since they cannot. Stephen says he's come across a new word, psychopanikia. And Stephen calls it the all-night sleep of the soul. And he says he's sure Martin's probably more familiar with it since it's a theological doctrine. But Stephen associates it with deep, long-lasting comfort. And as he says this, he's caressing his laudanum <laughs> bottle. Martin says he associates it with Gowden, who thought it was an erroneous belief. And, and this, you know, this term, interestingly, it's, it's Latin taken from the Greek in the, in the early New Testament. Um, and Calvin, you know, the, the theologian John Calvin, had written a Latin manuscript in 1534 entitled with this word, and people think about it uh, as the sleep of the soul, but it was actually the all-night vigil of the soul. It's kind of the opposite of Stephen's meaning. It's not soul sleeping. It's the soul staying awake. And it's this big Christian mortalism argument, uh, uh, Calvin and the Presbyterians ultimately versus the Anabaptists versus, you know, a lot of theological things about, you know, does the soul survive the body's death? Is it then awakened in heaven? Is it, you know, going to sleep mm. until the judgment day? We don't really need to know anything about that other than this idea that a lot of people saw it backwards such that, you know, Calvin had to write successive revisions of the title in order to get everyone in the meeting. Now, this Dr. John Gowden uh, in, died actually in 1662, was an English cleric. He was Bishop of Exeter and of Worcester. And, and I couldn't find any exact references to where he fell in on this debate, but there's right. certainly tons of them on Christian mortalism, which we don't need to know. <laughs> it's a really great Easter egg, and he's just in this backhanded way saying, Stephen's perception of the value of laudanum is kind of upside down here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Well, it's not the first time that uh, we've learned that Stephen lacks perspective about really how his character and how laudanum are helping each other out or not. <sighs> so, I mean, meanwhile, is this slightly involved passage here where we're getting closer and closer to the possible rendezvous with the Spartan and we're making there, but we're, we're not quite. All sorts of odd little Patrick O'Brien episodes just get dropped in here almost inconsequentially. And we've got people catching fish. We've got a man overboard. Our old friend Joe Place manages to find his way overboard and Jack rescues him and very little of any consequence happens as a result of that, except, you know, Place probably feels that he owes his allegiance even more strongly to Jack than before. He tells the ladies who are insisting on being taken to England directly that they'll head that way on Thursday. We've got some superstition, just like we often get in the books of Jack and Tom scratching backstays. And Jack sends Tom away. He gives him a rendezvous. He says, don't endanger the Merlin sails. I'm going to hang around here. And Mike, what happens next is 
the wind dies. Right. For all this scratching backstage, for all this Jack touching wood and saying, maybe, maybe, maybe not, I'm not tempting fate, fate seems to be ripping this away from us. The wind dies away. The Merlin takes in stales to say back with a surprise so they can match their pace. In the gun room, they tempt fate even further by drinking a toast to Boreas, the Greek god of the cold north wind. And West adds a little moderating note. He says, no close-reefed topsails in the graveyard watch. And time seems to just take a little standstill here. Stephen and Martin do a little bit of hunting for jellyfish. And in the morning, Stephen and Martin can gather all the jellyfishes that they want because the calm is still with us. Jack says that he'd like to swim after the sleepless night that he's had. And he hollers over to Pullings on the Merlin and says, this is what I've been praying for. I'm like, this is this is a very odd thing for Jack to say. And maybe, actually, it's a little bit of bravado on his part. He's saying, I'm fine. I'm fine with no wind. This is what I've been praying for. Killick sees right through this and says, may God forgive you. Meaning, you've, you've brought this on us with your wishes. And Jack continues saying that now they can get the rest of the disguise finished because calm weather means they can keep going with this painting and disguising routine. And O'Brien writes, a few of the simpler men from Shelmiston may have been deceived, but those who had long sailed with Captain Aubrey either nodded to one another or smiled privately. They knew very well that there were times when a commanding officer was required to talk just like this, just as a parson was required to preach on Sundays. They did not believe him for a moment. Yet this did not affect their purpose. And although the watch after watch of calm had taken away their first enthusiasm, they worked on doggedly so a nice little moment of the crew pulling together here they've decided it's not going to be on them if the ship isn't completely disguised by thursday they finished their disguise that day except for some rigging because they don't want to go ahead and change the rigging because that would cost them too much speed right well you know the wind does pick up except it's blowing right into their face so they're just tack upon tack trying to go into this and Stephen and Martin are below. They realize, you know, people aren't very happy above. <laughs> and so they're they're hanging out, working with their jellyfish and drawing them. And and they ask Killick when he comes down, you know, what what's going on? And Killick says, Well, we're barely making any progress. Stephen's like, Oh, I'm really glad the ship's moving again. But Killick's explaining, you know, they're going into the wind, and if the wind gets stronger, they're actually going to be going backwards here. Um yeah. And Martin says, well, hey, you know, whatever's happening to us is happening to the Azul as well. And Killick, you know, is like, oh, my gosh, no, no. You know, it's the Azul's going west. We're trying to go south. You know, he's trying to explain to Martin and Stephen <laughs> how these things work. And finally, um, you know, Killick's had it. So he's saying, you know, the, the sum total is we might as well go home. And, and O'Brien writes, so there are these buggers with their sheets hauled aft, talking about the Azul in their Goodwin, yeah. standing there with folded arms, spitting to leeward like the lords of creation, making six or seven knots, as easy as kiss my hand, bearing off our lawful prize. And indignation, O'Brien writes, choked him, choked killing. <laughs> you know, all of this tension, go fast. Oh, we got to stop for this guy. Oh, there's fish. No, we're not stopping to fish. Oh, now there's no wind. Oh, now we're sailing. You know, oh my gosh, it's just on and on, pages and pages. Of, we're going, we're not, we're going. No, wait, no, stop. It's hard. Well, I think it, these these long journeys, stop-start journeys with little detours and diversions, they can be wearing on the passengers. And I think we might need just to pull over and, uh, and grab ourselves a little bit of drive-through here on this long journey. So, Mike, why don't we take a little break? And refreshed with a, with a latte and perhaps a hamburger, we'll come back after the break. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lubbers hole. Speaking of Patreon supporters, we want to just take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We're really, really grateful for your support. You're helping us to make sure that we get the podcast sufficiently well edited, that we can pay attention to producing well put together episodes for you all. Thank you once again. We have some new patrons. So we want to say hello to Peter and Jesse and Emmett and Chris and to Folkcast. Great to see you guys off of Twitter as well. And Steve and Philip, we've had a few new Patreons joining us lately. Once again, welcome aboard. We're really happy to have you with us a glass of wine with each and every one of you. So, Mike, let's pick it up with Killick. How's he doing? So Killick, who was filled with indignation, the next morning is a much happier Killick. And he tells Stephen, he actually wakes him up and says, there's a sight that the captain would like Stephen to see. So the surprise Stephen sees when he gets on deck is laying over on her side. She's flying along. As a matter of fact, Stephen might not have noticed it, but Jack's got his old trick of cablets and light hawsers as extra preventer stays. So they're really going. And Jack's delighted. He says that the wind had changed right after Stephen had turned in. And then he shows Stephen two schools, a school of sperm whales, another school of right whales that are kind of passing through each other surrounding the ship. And mm-hmm. Stephen is so delighted. And so grateful. And and he's been kind of all, all out of sorts with everything. And, and you know, people have been very happy with him. So he, he makes doubly sure that they are indeed headed south and then tells Jack, I give you joy of your propitious wind. And the two of them head down and, and grab a coffee together. Um, as they, you know, go through the day, the speed is increasing. And Jack says they just might make it. Oh, on again how how much longer can we bear the tension how much longer can we keep going oh. and nearly everybody's happy again Killick's happy Stephen's giving joy of the wind Jack is looking like his star might be rising again everyone's happy except for poor old Padine his pain is getting worse Stephen's poultice that he's put on his face is not helping and Padine goes and doses himself with laudanum from the medicine chest. And here's a little marker of how deep this is drawing Padine in. Padine goes to Martin's room, gets Martin's brandy bottle, fills the laudanum bottle back up with brandy because laudanum is basically morphine and suspended in brandy, replaces the brandy in Martin's bottle with water, puts both bottles back and goes to his hammock. And Padine taking the laudanum and watering down what's left it's going to be an important pattern that we're going to come back to. Yeah, he's gone from getting dosed to self-medicating now, and deceptively so, right? Ah, oh, poor fella. Meanwhile, the rest of the ship is on the lookout. They're watching a sail that is five miles to leeward. She's flying Spanish colours, but Jack thinks that she's probably English. This ship has been packing on sail and running since she saw the surprise, but her mizzen topmast carried away in the wind. And Mike... This is an important moment. Jack decides not to go after her. Lucky Jack, the prize hound, says, "Uh, uh, uh, I'm not pursuing that one. He's flown past the Merlin. He can no longer see her. He doesn't want to lose any time. He climbs back down on deck, tells them to stay the course. And here's a key moment as well. There's no disagreement, no discontent with the crew. Everybody's still focused. 
I love that. Yeah, that and, and the wind veers to the northwest by west. So now, oh, even better for us. Jack packs on more sails. Everybody is pleased. Uh, but late in the day, Jack sees a deep cloud bank over to starboard. And he thinks to himself, you know what? God, we should probably take down some of the sails because I don't want to call these exhausted hands, you know, all hands in the middle of the night to change our sails. So we should probably do it now before nighttime. But he also thinks, gosh, you know, I want to keep everybody rested, you know, and if I wake up in the middle of the night, they won't be. I mean, even Bondin's looking gray and old. And then he reconsiders. And O'Brien writes, the likelihood of an engagement tomorrow had never been anything but small, and now it was smaller still. Yet only a fool would reduce it even more, reduce it to the vanishing point after so much pains and such a glorious run. But then again, there was such a thing as being too cautious by half for the chance to have any existence at all. The surprise must be present somewhere to windward between St. Michael's and St. Mary. So Jack weighing this together leaves the sail up, you know, hoping to, to make up the distance and really by morning to spot this rocky tip of St. Michael's. And then, you know, we've got one of those magic moments here. <laughs> Yeah, Stephen says to Jack, I've just transposed a duo by San Martini for violin and cello. And there's going to be not only peace pudding, but Mike, also toasted cheese. Right. Oh, here's another signal that we're getting back into our happy places. It's a short piece, we learned. So Jack is happy to play because he wants to turn in early and take the middle watch. So here's a little bit of San Martini. This is a piece that's been transcribed for two cellos. It sounds very lovely. Sam Martini wrote 50 sonatas, quite a few operas, symphonies. It's a nice little trick by O'Brien that this piece is described as a duo that's been transcribed because it could have come from any place where there were two voices together. And who knows? Sam Martini seems like a pretty good contemporary, though. And uh, he's clearly nice entertainment, nice little bit of light playing for Stephen and Jack before they turn in. Jack, we learned, stayed partially awake all night, and he's being entertained by the sound, this time not the sound of music, but by the sound of the water, the wind, the rigging, and the memory of the music that they'd played. He's sometimes drifting in and out of sleep, but he's hearing all of the bells as the watchers change. He's constantly aware of changes in the wind. And this is a really nice moment. The text says, it was a strange state, very rare for him, almost as restful as sleep, and much nearer quiet happiness than anything he had known since his trial. Ah. Oh. Boy, we love that. Clearly. Yeah. Mm, Jack, Jack heading in a good direction. Yeah, and he's getting there without Laudanum, so he's got one up right. on Stephen and Padine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you know, when Bondum comes to wake him, Jack's already up. He's on deck for his watch, and he sees that they slowed to six knots and sometimes under in the prior watch. Uh, but it's warm, and he notices that there's this luminous wake stretching out behind him, the first that he had seen this year. 
And Jack, you know, spends a lot of the watch gazing at that hypnotic wake. Uh, but at one point, the breeze freshens and they're able to add more than seven knots to the board. But O'Brien writes, it was never enough for any change of sail, nor did it alter this faintly moonlit, starlit, dreamlike sailing over the dark sea, except by adding a certain deep satisfaction. And, you know, sure enough, Davidge relieved Jack at 4 a.m. Jack heads back and plunges into his usual deep sleep. So I, I'm just loving where this seems to be going for Jack here. Back on deck at first light, you know, it's a deep sleep, but not a long sleep. You know, Jack foregoes some of the idlers' usual morning chores. And, you know, he says, let's get them to start making sail because unlike his other ships, these idlers are not just kind of extra hands. They're very able seamen. And Jack notes that they, like all of his men, are very eager to please, not out of some imposed discipline, but so that they aren't turned away. They want to be here. And, and Jack's thinking, you know, everything on the ship is working well. There's no driving, oaths, there's no ropes ends. And he thinks, as O'Brien writes, not many kingships could say as much. Mm. So, you know, feeling really good about his crew, really good about their progress. He climbs up with his telescope to go see, is that land exactly where I thought it is? But the direction is blocked by clouds. So, you know, he kind of takes a pause. He goes back down to his cabin and he keeps going over and over his figures and his calculations and his plotting. And he's starting to worry that he's worrying so much. Mm. Ah, right as he gets into this worrying about worrying, you know, he hears them call out. The land has been sighted, and Jack notes it's yeah. exactly where he calculated it was. And Stephen, who's, who's come in now, is surprised that Jack's not elated. And I loved Jack says, I'm pleased, certainly, but no, I am not as who should say elated. Feelings are curious. They come and go. And in any case, this is only one small step. There's still a great way to go. And I would say, Jack, very zen and, you know, very mindful. <laughs> yeah. He's getting quite a way ahead of Stephen here in the self-awareness state, yes. I think. Huh. And one of the other things that comes along with this nice weather is flying fish on the deck. Um, they're eating these freshly caught flying fish and Jack explains that they're going to have to go around the island in order to appear to be coming from the Azul's direction when they hopefully touch wood get spotted by the Spartan. Everything then depends on how the wind had been here on Tuesday. If it had slowed down the Azul, they may just be in time. If it hurried her, they're too late. Either way, he tells Stephen that he's going to see some unusual seaweeds and creatures around the islands. And then there's this really fascinating paragraph. Jack invites Stephen to think a little bit about his state of mind. Tell me, Stephen, he began after a pause, and he was going to continue, do you ever feel that what you're doing is not quite real, that you're playing a part, and that what seems to be the present don't really signify? Is it quite usual, or is it something unhealthy, the beginning of losing your mind? But it occurred to him that this might be too nearly related to complaint. And he has substituted, how is your padeen coming along? So, Mike, we get inside Jack's head. He had all of this really interesting kind of self-examination queued up. But he held back because he wanted to hang on to the stoicism and the fortitude that he prizes, I think, above everything else. So is he is he adapting? 
is is he going further than that? Where where does this insight, this self awareness from Jack take us? What a fascinating guy! What a fascinating situation! And what a fascinating direction for his character to go in, given where he's been in the last few chapters of this story. Right, right, and and who he's been many books earlier than this. This yeah. is this has not been always the most insightful, introspective, you know, guy. And that's boy, that's that's pretty pretty interesting stuff. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, Stephen, in answer to Jack's question says that Padine has a power of fortitude. And, and I ah, had to ah, chuckle ah. a little bit, right? Yeah. You know, little does Stephen know just how much chemically-based fortitude Padine has. Uh, the crew, meanwhile, is preparing. They're running cannons in and out in dumb show. They are absolutely getting ready here. And the noon observation shows that they've run off 210 miles from noon to noon. So they've got this long way to run down you know, from England down here off the Azores. Um, and they now seem to be making some great progress. Everyone cheers, but Padine doesn't hear it. He's back in the Orlop, once again, locking away the laudanum bottle, which has been topped up to an even higher mark than yesterday. So 210 miles is a great run. And we get these two... Characters running in parallel here, we get Padine sliding deeper and deeper into addiction, and we get Jack just climbing up out of his own kind of pit here. It's really, really profound. Jack says that they must think of getting on with the rigging, rigging the mizzenmast bark fashion, so they're going to take the square yards off. Um, he thinks about doing that after dinner. He seems to be going out of his way here as, as a privateer commander not to commit the direct military kind of ordering people about boss. He says they must think of rather than saying we shall do. So after dinner, because the the boats all naturally are are sat on top of the spare spars on the spar deck, they have to get the boats over the side. They tow them over the side while they do their business with the spars. They see a St. Michael's tunny boat and they stop. And Jack says to Stephen, please go barter with them for some fish. And Stephen asked the captain of this tunny boat in Portuguese about the wind on Tuesday. Was it southerly? Was it strong? And have they seen this Spartan? And afterwards below, Stephen passes on the news to Jack. He says that the wind had blown hard from the south on Tuesday. The Tunny Boat's uncle saw a bark past westwards yesterday. And Mike, this sounds like a setback to me. Uh, The fisherman didn't describe it. He just said it wore Spanish colours. And we all seem to be getting resigned to the fact that the opportunity might have gone by. Jack says, well, you know, it was a long shot at best. Maybe, he says, they should have some grilled fish and some cold beer, and that will make everything better. And Jack says while they're eating, if I was superstitious, I'd say this was caused by me crowing about that 210-mile run and by being smug about my landfall. And Stephen says, on the contrary, he had never heard Jack crow. No, says Jack, but fate did. Fate heard me. Believe me, Stephen, there is more in these feelings than old wives' tales and not working under ladders. It seems to me that you have to treat destiny or fortune or whatever is the right word with a proper respect. A man must not bounce or presume, but he must not despair either, for that is ill-bred. So although you may laugh in your sleeve, I mean to go through the motions of changing our rig and cruising between St. Michael and St. Mary for the rest of the day. Then tomorrow, having done the thing handsomely, we can go home. And if you choose, we will go by the Formigas and land you there for half a tide. 
very sanguine Jack Aubrey, very philosophical. And I, this takes me all the way back to, I think, Mauritius Command, where somebody said, fortune is bare behind. <laughs> right, right, that's right. You know, right. we must treat fortune with the proper respect. Ah, well, and, and true to his word, in full disguise, they're working between these islands all day, and there's no Spartan to see them, right? Right. And, and actually, none of the crew really expected to see her either, because some of the hands understood some Portuguese. So they're all kind of resigned to the fact. But nevertheless, they're doing everything with their usual accuracy and speed all through these wearisome turns and going back and forth. And in the evening, instead of their usual kind of music and dancing on the forecastle, you know, the hands are talking quietly together. And, and Jack decides to give him a break that normally, you know, he would pull the boats all in, be prepared in case something happens during the night. But he's thinking, you know, tomorrow we've got to reverse all these disguises. We've got to change the rigging. You know what? We just get the boats in in the morning with all of that. And he goes down below to work on his serial letter to Sophie. He's telling her that, you know, they didn't get all they wanted, but the Merlin is really a nice prize. And then outside he hears something that sounds like gunfire. Huh. And Mike, this is a very typically O'Brien way for us to stumble across some action, right? We're not actually going to get catapulted into the action. We get to sort of see about it and hear about it at a distance. On deck, they watch this gunfire. The gunfire is 10 miles away. There are two ships at least half a mile apart. They get Stephen off the boats. They put before the wind. And through his glass, Jack can see the chasing boat firing its bow chasers and the, the chase firing its stern chasers. The moon's not going to be up for hours, but they can see the flash of the guns. And with that flash, Jack can see that the leading ship is indeed a bark rigged like the Azul. They may not be the Spartan and the Azul, but it's worth finding out. Grasp a belaying pin. All hands are called. And Jack is looking through this glass that tells him whether they're getting closer or further away. And up in the rigging, looking through this glass, Jack tells Stephen his theory. He thinks that the Azul had stopped on Tuesday. The Spartan must have sailed east to look for her, perhaps gone too far north. They spotted each other late in the day. The Azul had run for it, we think, but the Spartan came within range a while ago, hence they're now firing at each other. They're hoping to knock something away. Jack believes that if the Spartan gets close enough without losing anything important, then her 42-pound carronades will knock the stuffing out of the Azul, which, by the way, is exactly the tactic that Jack had been thinking about using for the surprise against her prizes. So oh. um, Jack intends to chase them. He intends to use the long guns to take the Spartan from a distance. So it turns out to be fortunate that they hadn't yet got to switching over carronades. Ah, Mike, so action's getting closer and closer here. Yeah, they can, they can see the pursuing ship turn and fire a full broadside. And in that glare, they see that the pursuing ship is indeed ship rigged. And Jack is now, you know, he's, he's laying 100 pounds that she's the Spartan. Yeah. And an hour and a half later, you know, the pursuing ship has kind of made up the, the distance that they lost when they stopped to give the broadside. And she's coming up on what they believe is the Azul again. And both ships are firing their broadsides at each other. And now they can clearly see the Azul's blue sides because they're now only halfway to the horizon. And the Azul turns as if to run. The Spartan rakes her stern. But Jack's thinking maybe she's still a little too far away from the cannonades. But then the Azul does not appear to be moving. And there are lights running around her deck. And the Spartan comes on. So as Jack's watching, the Azul lowers two boats. They're kind of on the other side of where the Spartan is. 
And Jack believes that she has struck on this group of uninhabited rocky outcroppings there, the Formigas. You know, they're in this eastern group of the Azores. And so Jack reduces his sails to be as inconspicuous as he can be and continues to head for them. Right. And by the way, this is not the first time that a chase in a Patrick O'Brien book has ended up with one of the vessels going aground. Ah, Think back to Treason's Harbour and even further back. As the moon rises and they're kind of tiptoeing up on this encounter, they get close enough to see the Spartan that's still afloat grapple and board the Azul on the starboard side away from the surprise. So all of their attention is not in the direction of the surprise. Jack douses the lights. He brings up the arms chests. And meanwhile, the gunfire between these two other ships dies away into some final musket and pistol shots. They watch the Azul's men jump from their lit larboard gun ports into waiting boats. They pull clear. They're hidden from the Spartan. So Jack sees his moment. He gathers the crew on the quarter deck, tells them how things stand, and says, we're going to take both ships from the surprise's boats. Boarding the Azul will be the three boats. They'll go to the four chains. There'll be three boats going to the mizzen chains. Then they'll cross the Azul's deck and use the old Nelson's bridge to take the Spartans themselves from the front and rear. Jack says, not a sound until then. And the watchword once we're aboarded will be surprise. Very well chosen. Surprise! Surprise! (laughs) Mr. West, he says, will stay with the ship with 10 men. And again, Mike, this reminds me of the Sophie and the Cacafuego, leaving a skeleton crew behind. Well, yeah, the surgeon. <laughs> Just the surgeon. <laughs> oh my exactly. gosh, right. Jack says the signal is going to be three lanterns. That's the signal you should watch out for. They get into the launch. Jack has never known a cutting out expedition with this high degree of fierce anticipation. And Mike, there's something odd in the text here. O'Brien says fierce was not quite the word. And I wonder what he's talking about there. I'm wondering if he's saying that, you know, Jack's emotions are still a bit kind of blunted or if he's something other than fierce. Maybe he's joyful. Yeah. Or the crew, you know, the crew, Jack's looking around and says, you know, there's there's this fierce anticipation. But then I'm wondering maybe if O'Brien's saying, well, you know, if they were usual privateers, they would be fierce and bloodthirsty. But they're Jack's men now. And maybe... There's this huge anticipation, but perhaps not so fierce in a way. I mean, not that they're not going to go into battle. I don't know. I I wondered. It seemed like a strange kind of last thought that O'Brien drops into that paragraph. And I'm not quite sure what he means for us to make of it there. Well, the boats stay close together. They're approaching the Azul. And Jack's concerned that, you know, the Azul spotting them may be starting to fire grape shots. So he says, stretch out, stretch out for Doggett's coat and the badge. And you know, I'm hoping you'll tell us a little bit more about that in a minute there. Yeah. But they, there, there is no fire. They meet no resistance on the deck of the Azul. So they continue straight across Nelson's Bridge onto the Spartans. And the Spartans are completely surprised. Yes, that is pun intended. (laughs) However, 25 or 30 of the Spartans, you know, kind of come together, put up a good fight. Now, Jack has his sword shot from his hand. A pike thrust cuts his neck and he's butted under the chain by this one big guy, which knocks him back down on a corpse. He pistols the man who's butted him. He takes a heavy piece of shattered rail pushes against this group of Spartans, and then he uses it like a scythe. He cuts three of them down and is about to strike again. I mean, Jack is like full rampage here. When David says, sir, sir, they've struck. And the man who's who's now in command of the Spartans, their captain long since dead, 
confirms the surrender, orders his men down into the hold, and they learn that almost all of the remaining Azuls had left on boats, other than the wounded still left on the ship. So this wow. dogged coat and the badge that they're pulling out for you, what, what in the world? Well, it's the it's the name of the race and the name of the prize in the oldest rowing race in the world. So we're led to believe older than the Oxford and Cambridge boat race. This was a race in which apprentice watermen on the River Thames would compete, celebrating the uh, ascension of the throne of George the First of the House of Hanover back in 1714. They would row along a course four miles and five furlongs long. The prize was a traditional waterman's red coat with a silver badge. Um, displaying the horse, which is the symbol of the House of Hanover, and the word liberty in the honour of the the, the freedom-giving ascension to the throne of the Hanoverians. And each competitor receives a miniature of a Doggett's badge being the name of the founder of this race. There are loads of YouTube videos. Um, There's also a pub on the south bank of the Thames called Doggett's Coat and Badge. So uh, you've got to hope, I guess, that enough of the crewmen are going to get this reference to this, right, right. this Thames Waterman's race <laughs> yeah. for them to get the idea of it. Huh. So, Mike, it's really exciting action. We've been waiting for what feels like months now for some first-person, hand-to-hand naval combat action. And here it finally is, and it's over in like a paragraph and a half. But just like all the other pieces of action, it's right up close and personal. We're in first-person mode with Jack Aubrey. We've got boarding. We've got the surprises all together. And we've got a rapid overcoming of the enemy's crew here. Jack has those three signal lanterns hung out to signal that all is well. He surveys the dead. And there are no dead men among the surprises. The gunner and Webster, who had been the lookout earlier, are both wounded. And a young man catches up with Jack and says, can we cast off the bark? She's going to sink in five minutes and all the quicksilver is now off her. Wow. Like like you say, it, you know, all this happens so quickly. We learn about it so fast. And then you know, we're instantly with Jack and Tom Pullings over breakfast discussing the battle. And, you know, Jack is telling how, you know, the two ships had really battered each other. The, you know, their decks, both of the decks were covered in blood. There were only two boatloads of Azul's left, these wounded that they got off right before the Azul sank. And about two score, about 40 Spartans. And and Jack's kind of amazed that the Spartan, who was kind of on the other side of the Azul, the Azul's, you know, kind of gone to ground here. The Spartan hadn't run aground too. The Azul went down in actually just 10 fathoms of water. Now, Pullings ask about Jack's wound. And Jack says, the doctor says it's only a trifle and, you know, a glancing pike thrust. So, <laughs> you know. As, as they're talking about this, the bosun who Jack had called for arrives and Jack asks if they have plenty of French flags. And the bosun says, mm, maybe three or four. And then Jack says, well, then you might consider making a few more. I do not say you are to make a few more, Mr. Bulkley, for that might be coming at a trifle too high. I only say that you might bear it in mind. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the bosun says, aye, sir, bore in mind it is, says the bosun taking his leave. So, like you pointed out, Ian, I mean, there's this kind of interesting new form of command here on this privateer. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to make an indirect suggestion to you, and I'd like you to take it as an order, but I want to kind of leave it leave it hanging there. Oh, it's really great. Um, Jax tells Tom Pullings that Stephen and Martin, who they see collecting specimens, are not going to like his plan, but as soon as the Spartan is ready to sail, and 
She has lots of cordage and stores for the repairs. As soon as that's done, they need to bear away for Fael, where the Spartans' five prizes are also waiting to be collected. They need to get there before the Constitution and her heavy metal arrive on the scene. The Spartan appears in the offing, accompanied by something that looks very like the Azul. Of course, the Spartan don't choose to come down that long bay and lose time clawing out, but the Merlin, the Merlin they know so well, stands in, gives them a couple of guns and the signal for departure. They slip their cables and join us well out at sea, where we remove the prize crews and carry the prizes home, hoisting French colours aboard each one to fox the Constitution if she should heave in sight. Do you take my meaning, Tom? Nudge, nudge. Wink, wink. End of chapter three. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, so man. Jack has gone from like being very, 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 very cautious about claiming right to any kind of luck or chance or success to saying, well, actually, I've got this plan and it's a bit of a reach, but maybe it could work. And maybe, maybe <laughs> we can take all of these prizes. What do you think, Tom? Brilliant. In the end, Mike, a really good chapter. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was. it's a long chapter. There's so much back and forth, but wow. It, it, you know, ultimately, while in just a very short time, so much has happened and so much has changed with Jack, with Padine. You know, Stephen, like you say, they've, they've kind of reversed positions a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. a great chapter. Oh, it's great stuff. So, Mike, we've we still got lots coming up. We've got six more chapters. We've got Diana still in the back of Stephen's mind. We've got the Blue Peter jewel that's still being carried around. Um, Jack is still off the Navy list. Ray and Ledwood are out there somewhere. And it looks like maybe we've got some more action coming up here, according to Jack's plan. What do you say next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Surprise! Surprise!